This is episode 292 with sports psychology PhD, certified mental performance consultant, and coach to professional and Olympic athletes, Dr. Nicole Detlin. Welcome to the Strength Running Podcast. I'm your host, Coach Jason Fitzgerald, and the goal of this show, strengthrunning.com, and our YouTube channel is to help you better understand the process of improvement. Because when you recognize knowledge as a competitive advantage, you'll be a much better runner. Please connect with me anytime through strengthrunning.com, on Instagram at JasonFitz1, or on the Strength Running YouTube channel. And if you enjoy this podcast, support our sponsors who help us keep the lights on. First is the Mobo Board. Go to moboboard.com and use code STRENGTHRUN10 to save 10% on your board. Invented by renowned physical therapist Jay DeSherry, Mobo helps you stabilize your stance with an innovative rocker board that's set up on these two interesting fins. You'll learn how to improve stability with proper mechanics from the foot up. If you're an injury-prone athlete or if you are a very performance-oriented athlete, definitely check out the Mobo Board at moboboard.com. And don't forget code STRENGTHRUN10 will save you 10%. We're also supported by Athletic Greens, the health and wellness company that makes AG1. I love AG1. I've been taking it consistently for about a year and a half now. It's the most popular greens mix available on the market today with 75 vitamins and minerals, prebiotics, probiotics, antioxidants, adaptogens, is just a fantastic all-in-one nutrition supplement. And to make taking control of your health even easier, Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase to make taking AG1 with you on the road even easier. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash Jason, and you can choose from a single purchase if you just want to try it out, or you can set yourself up on a monthly drop to make this part of your ongoing nutrition plan. You can see all those details at athleticgreens.com slash Jason. Okay, joining me today is Dr. Nicole Detling. She received her BA in psychology and sports science from Ohio Wesleyan University and her master's in sports psychology from Ithaca, and then her PhD in sports psychology at the University of Utah. She also completed a sports psychology internship in the Sports Medicine Center at the Mayo Clinic and is a certified mental performance consultant through the Association for Applied Sports Psychology. Nicole has been consulting with athletes and performing artists since 1998 and is also the co-author of the book, Don't Leave Your Mind Behind. Nicole is currently the mental performance coach with the pro soccer teams Real Salt Lake and the Utah Royals, and also the U.S. para-archery team. In this conversation, we're discussing the topic of intensity and how to get in the right frame of mind before an important performance. And if you want to improve your mindset, learn to train the most important muscle in your body, your brain. Sign up for our free mindset series at strengthrunning.com brain. Now, without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Nicole Detling. Thanks for being here, Nicole. I'm excited to talk to you today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to get going on this project. Well, yeah, um, I, I was going to take this discussion in quite a few different directions. I'm excited about that, but I thought it might be interesting to talk about intensity or getting to an appropriate arousal level before an important race or a workout. And 
I think this area of sports psych is often overlooked by athletes, but it's happened to nearly everyone. I know I have many memories of being on the line of a race or right before a workout. And I find that you're either too low or you're too up before the race. Do you find that endurance runners struggle with that skill of getting to the right intensity level right before an important race or workout or really no matter what kind of run they're about to embark upon? Absolutely. And I wouldn't say that it's unique to endurance runners. I've been doing this for almost 21 years now and, or sorry, almost 22. And I've seen it in every sport at every level, both genders. It's just across the board, um, finding the proper intensity level for you um, in comparison to others might be very different, but finding what's right for you can be really challenging. Um, but I've also found it to be incredibly powerful when you do. And so that's definitely something that I have conversations with athletes around quite consistently, actually, whether it's, you know, 10 year olds or elite marathoners. I mean, I have just this past week, um, an Olympic, uh, now she qualified for with the uh, OTQ, the Olympic trial qualifier time in the marathon. Um, but she'd been struggling with that for a while. And one of the reasons that we found that she was struggling with getting that time was exactly what you're talking about, Jason, just finding that intensity level that works for her prior to the race. So that when she got up to the starting line, she wasn't just physically warmed up, but she knew she was ready to go. So mentally she was where she needed to be and able to sustain that, but then also adapt during a marathon because that's a lot of time. Right. And so, oh, for sure. yeah, it might be different if you're running a 5k than it is for a marathon, right? You don't have as much time or distance to adapt to any changes that come, or it may not even be necessary in a 5k for some people. But when we're talking, you know, when we get into the longer races, then that adaptability of the intensity can be really powerful as well as just starting correctly. And you mentioned that, uh, you know, you have to find the right intensity level for you. And that right. essentially means that some people are going to operate much better with a higher intensity level, and some people are going to work much better off a lower intensity level. And I certainly experienced this being on a cross country and a track team throughout high school and college, and just kind of being around teams of runners all the time. I had teammates who, you know, were ready to run through a wall right before a race. And I had some runners, you know, some teammates who would just be sitting quietly under a tree listening to music and not Absolutely. really engaged. So how do you go about finding what works for you? Is it simply a matter of experimentation? Somewhat, um, but we we've already been experimenting, right? If you're a runner, then you've experimented with this, even if you weren't aware that you were experimenting. But before I get into that, I do want to clarify something that I think is really imperative for being able to understand what intensity level you prefer. And that is the difference between being intense and tense. So in other words, when we're talking about being intense, I'm talking about more about a mental intensity level. So some people might call it, you know, being locked in or dialed in and how much are you really focusing on what's happening in that moment? How much is your mind intensely geared toward what you are about to do versus physical tension, right? So physical tension being a lot of times I'll explain it, you know, on a scale of one to 10, one being totally chill, mellow, relaxed, hot tub, massage kind of thing. And 10 being, you know, completely tight, all of your muscles in your body, super tight, super tense. 
and looking at that range within both an intensity, a mental intensity level, as well as a physical tension level, where do you perform your best, right? And so a lot of people don't clarify those two uh, mental and physical intention, intensity versus tension factors. And I think that's something that's really important to do. So what I have found is the most successful individuals in any sport are really able to understand how to have a high level of intensity with an appropriate level of tension, knowing that you can be focused on something very intensely, but still feel physically pretty chill, mellow, relaxed. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I'm, I'm starting to kind of understand this from uh, a more experiential level because of my background as a runner. Uh-huh. Um, and, and the the mental intensity, I like how you put it, and you really described it well, that there's both a mental and a physical component to this issue. And that when we talk about intensity, it is a mental skill. It's something that, uh, you know, we need to dial in to the, to the proper amount for us, but, but it is mental. It's not tension in our body. It's not, you know, us, us kind of being manic or anything like that. It's just almost like a, a form of concentration. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. Um, but I, I want to be careful about using the word concentration and even focus because a lot of people feel that that's just a visual acuity in that you're staring at something very intently. And that's not what I'm talking about when I mean focus or concentration. It's it's really more about wrapping your mind around the present moment and being engaged mentally in that moment. And that could look very different for other people. Right, right. So is this kind of an issue of being either distracted or or not being fully present with the task sure. at hand when you're yeah. immediately before an event? Sure, it could be. Absolutely. However, you know, again, the intense focus, you know, um, prior to an event is going to be different for some people. So, you know, some people want to be very intensely engaged in that moment. And other people want some something that I like to call deliberate distractions, where they deliberately take their mind somewhere else, because that's what helps them prepare best for that event. So again, going back to those individual differences in both the mental intensity, as well as the physical tension that's necessary for an optimum performance. I feel very fortunate because I feel like I have found what works for me personally before a big race or a workout. And frankly, I like to, uh, like you just described, almost distract myself right before the workout or the race. I'll joke around with my teammates. You know, I'm I'm not real. It almost seems like I'm just not paying attention to what I'm about to do. But then, as soon as the gun goes off and the race begins or the workout starts. I'm I just so very uh, intently focused on the task at hand. And so I kind of like to flip flop back and forth because I found that if I think too hard or or I just am so uh, engaged with what I'm about to do before the race, then I just waste a lot of mental energy and I, and I get too nervous. And so for me, it's almost like, you know, I'm preserving some of my uh, what I'll call mental skills for the race itself or for the workout itself. 
Yes, fantastic. I'm so glad that you shared your personal story with that. I think it's powerful for people to see how someone else does this. But then also, I love that you talked somewhat about the adaptability, right? You have to be flexible in what works for you. And particularly when we're talking about endurance running. So let's let's look at just the act of running in and of itself, right? You're in one plane of motion. And it's just repeated over and over and over again, right? It's step, 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 step. So there's not a ball that's flying around and you're paying attention to a number of different factors. There's not other people involved. It's very much a singular dimension in terms of physically what's required of you. But mentally, that doesn't mean that one singular dimension from a mental perspective is going to be effective throughout an entire race. It can be, certainly for some people, but being able to have adaptability and flexibility around mindsets can be just as powerful. So it's kind of finding the range that works for you that tends to be what works for most people, but that range has to be individualized. Yeah. And I, and I think too, that it really depends on what you're about to do. So for example, if you're about to race a marathon, you kind of have to have a different intensity level than someone who's about to race a, a single mile. You know, the, the, uh, just uh, sheer intensity level of a short, fast race like the mile is going to require a different mindset than something that's going to take, you know, two and a half, three, four hours to complete. So when my runners want to be in a, you know, maybe a, a lower, uh, intensity state versus a more higher in intensity state? Well, okay. So let's go back to, I, I do want to go back to your question of how do you find that for yourself? And then once you find it, how do you increase or decrease it? I think that would be a, a good route to go. So, you know, for listeners, just kind of like following these strategies and getting into these steps. So I want to go back to, um, you know, I talked about that scale earlier of tension levels, like one chill, mellow, relaxed, and 10, like really tense. If you think back to performances that you've had, and ideally they would be races. Um, and ideally you're thinking about races that you consistently race in. So if you're more of a marathoner, then think about marathon races. If you're more of a 5k person, think about a bunch of your 5ks, whatever you tend to participate in the most, let's just, it's an easier place to start. And again, ideally you're looking at it from, um, a performance perspective. So in actual races, however, if you can't come up with those, it's okay to go to practices. Okay. Training runs, but thinking back to when were you on? When did you feel great? When did you feel powerful? When did it flow? Was it free that everything was working for you? And if you can come up with a few, a handful of those examples and then rewind those examples to right before the race and then look at that scale of one to 10 and where were you during that time period? And initially for most people start with that physical tension level, because that's a lot easier for people to identify than the mental, especially retrospectively through memory. We can remember a lot more of that, man, I felt so tense that day versus what was I actually thinking? The, the further away we get from the race, the more difficult it is to remember your thoughts. So go back to some of those tension levels. And typically most people will be able to come up with a number on that one to 10 scale of where they would like to be prior to racing. So what, where do you feel? What makes you feel when you step up to the line? If you have that tension level in your body, you feel like you're ready. You're not just warmed up, but you're ready to go. You're at the right tension slash intensity level, whatever you want to call it. But I'm thinking more of the physiological perspective. Where are you? 
And let's just say it's a five, right? So for some of you, it might be a two. For some of you, it might be a nine. The actual numbers are relevant, or I should say is less relevant than finding the one that works for you. And it's your number, not yours compared to someone else's. So for example, my five might be your three. That's okay. It's not what mine is. It's what yours is. So let's just say that you like a five. So you kind of like a middle of the road. You're you're up a little bit, but you're not too high, but yet you're totally in control and you still feel kind of chill. So what that means, if you like a five, that means a, a four to a six would be ideal for you. So we know that we can't find perfection every single time. Maybe that five is what you're shooting for, but the reality of getting to a five every time is pretty slim. However, you can find a range. So you want a four to a six. So let's look at those ranges and say, if you're a little lower than where you want to be, you're still good. If you're a little higher than where you want to be, you're still good at that four to six. So start with that physiological, find your range. Then what you can do, and we'll talk about this in just a moment, but what you can do from there is help understand the mindset that helps get you into that range. So start with a range and then work on finding that range for every single training run. So even if you're not training, you know, let's say you're a marathon runner, but you're not going to run a marathon in training today, you're not running 26.2, maybe you're running 13, or maybe you're doing mile repeats on the track, or, you know, whatever your training session is for that day, you can still find that similar range that you would need to find to be able to compete at your best. Now, that range may be great for a competition, may not be great for training, but what it will help you do is increase your self-awareness of where are those tension levels, how does that influence your performance, and then once you have that awareness, you can start adjusting accordingly. And we'll talk about how to adjust in just a minute, but I want to check in with you on this concept and make sure that it's something that you're following, is making sense, see if you have any questions about it. No, I really like this. And and I like that you're talking about self-awareness because I think that's a big part of this. And, uh, you know, it, I think it really is important for runners to think back on their best performances, you know, and, and this is very similar to runners keeping a training log so that when they get hurt, they can go back in their training log and look back and say, okay, what kind of running and workouts was I doing that led to this injury? And this is very similar for a performance and a mindset perspective. And so I think that's very valuable. Yeah, perfect. And actually what I do ask runners that I work with to do is throw this number every day into their training log. It's very simple. It's very easy. Where did you start? Right? What was that number? Find out where you were, self-awareness, check in. And again, the more you're aware of where you are, the easier it is to make so, to influence it. But then also it's not just where you are, but where you want to be, right? And so that self-awareness of here's where I currently am, here's where I want to be, then we can work on strategies to get you there. But if you don't know where you want to be and you don't know where you currently are, then the strategies are, I don't want to say pointless, but they're really not going to be that effective for you because you don't really know what you're working to accomplish. Yeah, I like that. You actually have to know where you're going. It's almost like having a running goal. You know, If you don't know what you're training for, then you're not going to know what kind of training to do. And right. so I, I really like that. Um, right. What are some of those strategies? You know, we've been talking kind of uh, around this topic and and talking about uh, how we can determine what kind of an intensity level might work best for us. But once we know that, once we've done that kind of homework into ourselves, how do we then determine the effective strategies for getting up a little bit higher or getting a little bit lower if we need that? Sure. So 
there's pretty standard strategies that you go to any sports psychs they're going to talk about. And those strategies are things like using breathing appropriately, using music. They're going to talk about self-talk. They're going to talk about some imagery or visualization. And actually, all of the standard strategies can be used to, to either increase your intensity or decrease your intensity. It's just, It might be the same concept, but you use it a little bit differently. So you would breathe a little bit different if you want to come down versus breathing a little different if you want to come up. You would use self-talk a little bit different to come down versus if you want to come up. So the beauty is all of these strategies can be used to either increase or decrease that intensity once you know which one you're looking at, looking for. So let's talk about some of the standard ones, right? I mean, breathing is probably one of the most one talked about ones, regardless of who you would go and see. And a lot of sports psychs will talk about, you know, just taking deep breaths to calm yourself down and whatnot. I like to really get into the physiology behind it and how it's influencing you and understanding how oxygen and carbon dioxide work within your system, how both are necessary, how we need to transport some of those red blood cells in a more effective manner that really helps the efficiency of the movement. And so this is where we get into, you know, the kinesiology and biomechanics and how all of those things are impacted by the way that we breathe. And so a quick and easy way to check in with this is just as you're sitting there listening to us talking right now, don't change any breathing habits or patterns in the moment. Just be aware of how you're breathing. Where is that breath coming from? Put one hand on your chest, one on your stomach, and just breathe normal, just as you are right now. And which hand is rising? Is it your chest? Is it your stomach? Is it somewhere in between? What's happening? What's going on? What we find is that a lot of people are over breathers, and that's not something you hear about a lot, but a lot of people end up breathing too often, and they're taking too many breaths, essentially, within a minute. Yeah, so what what a lot of people will tend to do then is they take really shallow chest breaths, they take too many in the course of a minute, which means that they're they're not getting the oxygen and the carbon dioxide running throughout their system the way they need to in order for their muscles to stay calm and relaxed and in order for blood flow to help increase efficiency of movement. So if your chest is the one that's rising first, you're probably one of those people who's over breathing. Okay. And so a lot of different ways that you can work on solving that. So one of them is just being very conscious and aware to make, to sit down, have one hand on your chest, one on your stomach, and really work on getting the hand on your stomach to rise. That's a really quick and easy way to start, right? You're just sitting at home, no problem. Work on breathing more from your diaphragm. When you breathe more from your diaphragm, you can take less breaths in a minute, which then is going to get that carbon dioxide and the oxygen in your system to work, to function the way it's supposed to work. So starting with some of that, you know, we talk about deep breathing, but I'm not even talking about that right now. I'm talking about normal breathing and training your body to normally breathe from your diaphragm. Okay, so super quick and easy. Once you get better at doing that, then you're checking in before your training run. Maybe, you know, you're doing a little um, dynamic stretching and whatnot, getting ready right before you start. One of the most effective things that you can do is making sure you're breathing from your diaphragm. One of the quickest and easiest ways I'll tell athletes either right before a training run, right before a competition, right before the it's time to go it to make sure that they're taking those breaths they need to is to exhale really deep 
It can be somewhat quickly and it's very controlled. And you always start with the exhale because when you exhale and you get rid of whatever's already in your lungs and just kind of hanging out there, you create space automatically, which means your body will automatically take that deep inhale from your diaphragm. Okay. Um, so essentially you're just, you're getting ready to go. You're getting ready to go up to the starting line. And basically, hopefully you can hear it because I can't show you, but basically you just go <sighs> like that. That's it. And push the air out, contract your abs, push the air out from your diaphragm. Your body automatically responds by taking a diaphragmatic breath and you don't have to think about it. So you're not counting your breath. You're not trying to think about breathing really deep through your nose, like all of that kind of stuff, which is all great when you're in yoga, but not very realistic when you're at the starting line of a race. So that's one of the things that you can do to help bring yourself down when you need to come down a little bit, let's say you need to come up. If you need to come up, then what you do is you start to emphasize the inhalation part of the breath. So an exhalation is what you emphasize if you need to come down a little bit. An inhalation is what you need to emphasize when you need to come up a little bit. And that inhalation is very similar to the exhalation, but it's a very deep, it's a very forceful inhale getting your diaphragm involved, taking a couple of them, and it's going to increase your blood pressure. It's going to increase your heart rate. And all of those factors then physiologically are going to help you feel more up in that moment than what you currently are. Do you ever get any pushback from athletes who don't think they should be working on breathing because it should be happening subconsciously? Yeah, of course. And so then <laughs> we go through, yeah, we all go through the entire physiological thing. Um, I'll explain how their bodies work. I have tons of books on my shelf. So if they're sitting in the office with me, I'll pull them off. If they're not, sometimes I'll pull it off and hold it up to the camera on the computer and show them, or I'll refer them to websites or I'll say, check this out, get some more information here or there. And we can usually start talking through examples of when they were breathing well and when they were breathing poorly. And once they start to see, from their own experiences, when it was working, when it when it doesn't, all of a sudden they recognize the importance of it. Well, I really like this because it, it goes to show that some of these strategies are not, you know, rocket science. You don't no. have to have a PhD in sports psychology to take advantage of these tactics, these strategies to help improve your performances. And often some of them are fairly simple to execute and to learn. And, and I think all runners should think hard about these strategies because, you know, if you do struggle with uh, getting in the right frame of mind before a race and finding that optimal arousal level, you know, these are, these are some really effective strategies to do so. And Nicole, you mentioned earlier visualization, and I'd love to touch on this a little bit more. Uh, it seems to be a very effective strategy for getting your head right before a race. What are some of the best practices for visualization if runners want to start trying out this strategy? Well, if you've never used it before, um, a couple of things to keep in mind, and actually even if you have. So the two most important factors are vividness and controllability of the image that you're seeing or the vision in your mind. And so essentially, you want it to be as vivid as possible. So include as many details in the picture as you can, and you want it to be controllable. So in other words, you want to control 
that picture in your mind. So if you're running a certain time at a certain pace, you want to be able to actually see yourself feel and feel yourself running that pace in your mind, not a slow motion kind of run. Or, you know, you don't want to see yourself tripping and falling in your mind, right? You want to be able to control that image. So a lot of times what I'll have people start with is something that really doesn't matter to them. So you know, for all of us, we spend a lot of time in our bedrooms or in the kitchen or something like that. We're familiar with specific spaces in our lives. And so what I'll have people do is just close their eyes and recreate that space. So if you just kind of right now, close your eyes and you think about your bedroom, and I want you to think about as much detail as possible about your bedroom. So it's not just seeing it, right? But let's start with seeing because it's usually the easiest for people. But notice what color are the walls? Are there curtains or blinds? What color is your comforter? Do you have furniture? Do you have lamps? Do you have chairs or any kind of furniture? And you're just kind of noticing and seeing everything in your room, just kind of putting it all in place and seeing everything and notice the colors, notice the texture. If some of the textures look differently, But then you want to incorporate other senses as well, because when we talk about most people use the word visualization, but it's actually imagery is more powerful. Vision is just one sense that we have. So visualization is part of imagery, but imagery also includes feeling, smelling, hearing, tasting, touching all of the senses. And so when you think about your bedroom, then feel your mat or feel your bedspread push down on your mattress. What does that feel like? What about the knobs? Do you have knobs? Do you have pulls on your drawers? Can you feel them? Are they metal? Are they wood? What does it feel like when you grab a hold of them? Right? Does your bedroom have a smell? So maybe you have a, a, you know, a scent, a certain scent in your room. So you might light candles, you might, you know, have some kind of a spray that you enjoy. Does it smell in any particular way? And then really getting into once you're able to recreate the room with as many senses as possible, I also like to have them start to manipulate the room. So unmake the bed, make the bed, open the curtains, close the curtains, leave drawers open, put clothes on the floor, clean things up, straighten things out, and really start to manipulate the room. And once you're able to manipulate the room, then you're able to take those manipulations that you've kind of learned, you've taught your brain how to manipulate something that doesn't really matter. There's probably not a lot of emotional connection there to an event such as a race where there would be more emotional connection and there's more adrenaline and there's a lot more happening in terms of how you're feeling about a race. And so then you're able to go and really start working on visualizing, imagining, whatever word you want to use for it, the race. And depending on the race, I'll often have people always do the some the beginning, the middle, and the end at some point. You got doing that, whether you're I don't care if you're running a hundred meter dash, right? Beginning, middle, and end. But then the longer the race, the more you can imagine. So for example, the marathoner that I've been recent, most recently working with um, was doing a marathon on a course that she had never run before. So we got online together and we found a visual of the course that we looked at a Google Google Earth visual. So you could kind of see it around, but then we also found a video and you can watch the video of the entire course. And so going through that video, then being able to use visualization as far as how do I feel like I will most likely feel at this certain point in time. And you can use different things like, um, 
funky buildings or, you know, running by a park or under a bridge and using various things that are in that environment to kind of anchor parts of your vision. And maybe that's a place where you check in with what am I saying to myself? Where is my level one to 10? Am I where I want to be? Am I a little high? Am I a little low? And then using a strategy, even in the middle of the race to get you into a better mindset. And maybe it's about dealing with the pain that you're currently experiencing. Or maybe you know that that's where you often hit a wall. And so you're talking yourself through, or maybe that's where you're checking in with your breathing or whatever it might be. But we can use different things in the environment to kind of anchor ourselves to be able to perform in a more optimal way. And so we can use those through visualization and imagery long before you ever even get to the race so that when you get there, you feel that not just physically have you done your workouts, but you're mentally prepared. You know what's coming, you know where it's going to be, and you've anchored yourself in really positive ways and using strategies to adapt your mindset to be more powerful in those moments. I love that. Thank you, Nicole. And I think too... You know, this, I'm so glad that you mentioned how important it is to have a rich imagery uh, experience in your mind to really involve all of your senses. Because, um, you know, that and what you said earlier, you said, imagine what it feels like to be racing. And, you know, that's just not what the course looks like, it's how your legs feel landing on the ground. It's how the wind feels against your legs. Yep. You know, it's, it's how you're breathing and how the wind is rushing past you. And obviously that might be different if you're racing a marathon versus a hundred meter sprint because of the, the speed of the race. And that really drives home for me the importance of really imagining everything you're going to experience on race day from what you see to what you hear and and maybe even what you smell what the gels taste like that you're planning to eat when you're going to take those gels and yeah. every little uh, aspect of the race if you can set that up in your mind then you're just going to be more mentally prepared for what happens on race day and 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 I really appreciate the uh, the multi-sense approach to using imagery in your running yeah, it's really powerful. It's so much more powerful when you use that because let's face it, when you're running, you don't just see things. <laughs> you feel <laughs> a lot, right? And so I, another thing that I think is really important that I want to make sure your listeners are aware of is that it's not just imagining the perfect race. And I think that's a trap that a lot of people fall into. Well, this is exactly what I want to happen. So that's what I'm going to imagine is happening. But we all know that running is painful right? I mean, it sometimes it just downright sucks. It just hurts. And so also imagining some of those things that are difficult for you, but you know, are probably going to happen at some point or another, like feeling pain. What is your plan for when the pain comes? And so you can use imagery to say, okay, well, I hope I don't feel pain, but let's face it, I, I might. And so if I do, what's my plan for it? How will I attack it? And you can use imagery in those ways as well. If you're somebody who hates running uphill or hates running downhill, well, you're probably going to have to in that race. So it's a great idea to imagine yourself dealing with adversity as well as just imagining yourself doing well, because adversity is a big part of the sport. And if you only imagine yourself always finishing in this glorious arms up in the air, my life is amazing. You're probably going to drop out of the race long before you get to that finish line because you've not prepared yourself for the adversity that comes during a run. And so that's not to say that imagining it is going to create it to happen. But 
on the reverse, it's actually imagining your response to the adversity helps prepare you for if the adversity comes. Yeah, I think that's absolutely critical. Now, do you also advise your athletes to use visualization or imagery to imagine when things go very horribly wrong or to imagine something like, all right, you get to the race and it's pouring rain or you accidentally lined up in the wrong corral or your first mile was either way too fast or way too slow. How do you advise those runners to think about mistakes or accidents or or those kinds of things that, that inevitably happen to us all at some point? Yeah. So I typically call that plan Z. So that's our plan Z training, right? Because everybody shows up and they want plan A to work where they feel great that day. They feel light. They slept well. They're tapered perfectly and they have the most perfect race. That's plan A. How often does that actually happen, right? And so I hope that happens for everybody, but that's really not reality. So we talk about plan B and plan C and plan D, but then I always, and we don't necessarily go through every letter, but we talk about plan Z in terms of those kinds of adversity that you're talking about, Jason. So something just is not working that day. And it would typically be something that would really set you off. So I'll have conversations with those athletes and say, okay, tell me some of those things that you need a plan Z for that's happened in the past. And let's predict some that could potentially happen. So what are some of those things that could potentially happen that would really throw you off? And then let's talk about a plan for it. So what is the mental plan to get yourself back into the right headspace? If you did line up in the wrong corral, what would you do? Right. And a lot of times what I've found is that having a plan Z is part of the prevention for ever having to use it. And what it tends to do is just build confidence that if something were to happen, then you're prepared for it. And many times that means you don't actually need it because the preparation helped prevent that from happening. However, if it does happen, you have your plan. So we don't spend a ton of time on that, but we absolutely will spend some time preparing and having that plan Z in place so that at the end of the day, you really do feel ready for anything that might get thrown your way. Now, can we predict everything? Of course not. Of course not. But oftentimes, just knowing that things aren't going to line up perfectly every single race helps you deal with some of the unpredictable events as well. Nicole, you are giving me flashbacks to the 2010 Cherry Blossom 10-miler in Washington, D.C., where I got off on the wrong metro stop before the race, Oh no! got there too late, had to wait in an extraordinarily long bathroom line, didn't have enough time to do a proper warm-up, and I was a mental basket case before the race. I ended up missing my personal best by two seconds in a 10-mile race, and I I've been thinking about this race clearly now for 10 years (laughs) because (laughs) I know that if I had a better mental plan, if I had better prepared myself for that kind of adversity, even just to say, okay, if that happens, this is my shortened warm up and my race strategy is then going to change in this way. I would have potentially run a new personal best. And and I, I think about that sometimes as a really good case study in not being mentally prepared for adversity. Right, exactly. And I love that 
you've already kind of thought through what are some options if that were to ever happen again. If I could go back and redo it, what could I have done? And that's a key for a lot of it because we'll walk away from those situations just being really upset or frustrated or disappointed and then we leave it versus saying, okay, what's plan Z? If something like that were to ever happen again, as you said, Jason, what's a shorter warm up that will still make me feel like I'm ready to go? right? Because that kind of stuff does happen. And so looking back and saying, okay, what's what's a plan for that in the future is helping you create your own plan Z for the next adversity that strikes. And maybe next time, it's not that you got off on the wrong metro stop, but something else prevented you from getting there on time or in the time that you wanted to, how will you handle it? It's really important to have those, those plan B, C, and Ds because as runners, we know that that adversity is going to happen sooner or later. And it's just one of those things that uh, is just part of racing. And, you know, for someone like me who has a propensity to get off on the wrong metro stop or <laughs> to get off, th- I was recently disqualified from a race because I actually, <laughs> I actually cut the course because I turned around in the middle of an ascent. I just do these silly things all the time. And and I, I really have found that I have to have a good mental approach to dealing with them because, you know, I, I just tend to make these kinds of silly mistakes. Yeah. And you're not the only one. <laughs> no. Um, Nicole, I'd love to transition a little bit and talk about some of your work with pro athletes. I mean, you have worked with everyone from pro archers to soccer players to Nordic skiers and pretty much every sport pro sports league in the country. And I've always loved studying elite athletes, both for what is similar or exactly the same among these elite athletes and everyone else, but also the things that are different and the things that they do differently. So have you found that elite athletes approach this topic of getting in the right mindset before uh, competition or finding that right intensity level? Do they approach that differently than the rest of us? I would say no. I mean, at the end of the day, they they just have had more training because they've spent more time at their sport than a lot of the rest of us, right? And so they've, over the course of time, figured out how to dial that in a little bit better for themselves. Yet their process of getting there is no different than us amateurs in our process of getting there. And so, and a lot of the strategies they use are the exact same strategies that we use and the strategies that I'm talking about. I think they've just over the course of time have gotten a little bit better at figuring out, you know, if we go back to that range of one to 10, they know exactly where they need to be and they know their, they know their best strategies for getting there. But just like the rest of us, it doesn't mean they always get there right? You can do everything right. And it still just doesn't feel good that day for some reason, or you did a lot of things wrong. And for some reason you were just able to lock it in. And so I think for a lot of the pro athletes, they're, they're more aware of those things and they're better able to deal with the adversity when it comes because they've had a lot more experience at it. Yeah. I think that's actually very encouraging for us recreational athletes because, you know, we look at these elite level runners, they're running, you know, sub four miles, they're running the marathon. And my God, we've now had a sub two marathon. And and we think, how are we ever going to approach the level of these athletes? And and I think it's very comforting to know that while they might have been born with physical skills that are genetic in nature, and that we may never be able to come close to the mindset that they have and their mental skills that is almost just like everyone else. And it can be worked on, it can be improved, and it just takes some time and effort. And I think that is 
very encouraging for us. Yeah. And that's 100% true. I mean, I'm actually tomorrow night, I'm giving a talk at a high school with all of the kids. So all the whole athletic department, all the kids are going to be there. And I'm going to teach them the exact same stuff that I teach the pro athletes that I've worked with the exact same stuff. And so for all of us, it's like, maybe we won't be pro in our sport, you know, compared to the profession, the actual professional league athletes, but can you be pro for you? Can you be the best you can be in your sport? Yeah. Right. So maybe we don't have the same, as you said, you know, physical dispensation for certain things, or we haven't had, we haven't been able to put the time into training or whatever it might be. At the end of the day, we can still improve ourselves regardless of what we're doing. And we can use the exact same strategies that the pro athletes use to improve themselves from a mental perspective. We can all be doing those things. And it goes far beyond sports as well. I talk to a lot of business leaders. I've done a lot of leadership workshops for the federal government and a lot of their employees on how to be more resilient and more mentally tough. And you know what? It's the same strategies that we use in athletics. So it's really the beauty of the mind is the mind is the mind, regardless of what our performance is. It's just whether our our body is physically engaged in something or mentally engaged in something, right? Whether we're sitting at a desk or we're standing up giving a workshop or a lecture or public speech, or we're out running a marathon, what our bodies are doing are differently, but our minds can be trained very similar in each of those circumstances to perform at our best level. So really, if we're looking at the mind, it's training the mind is no different depending on whether you're an elite athlete or an amateur businessman, right? It's all the same thing. It's just figuring out kind of where you are on your mental journey, plugging in at that moment and working to improve. And you can always improve and become mentally tough. I think that's one of the most exciting aspects of sports psychology is that it has so many transferable qualities to the rest of your life. Right. Yeah. Now, when we were talking about some of these skills, Nicole, you mentioned, you know, we talked a lot about breathing. We talked a lot about using imagery. How often do you suggest athletes employ these skills in their training? Do we have to do breathing exercises before every run? Do we have to use imagery before every race? What's the optimal schedule so that we can start getting a lot of the benefits of doing these, but we're also not spending two hours a day visualizing every run? Well, and I'll tell you, as far as visualization goes, all of the research says 10 minutes a day. If you do 10 minutes a day, and it doesn't even have to be sequentially, you could do two minutes five times a day. But if you do 10 minutes a day, that's where you're going to start seeing some improvements. Now, going back to the other part of the question, something I want you all to consider is that we talk about how mental sports are right? And how if we think about running, what's the percentage of running that's mental versus physical, right? And people are going to come up with different answers for that question. And then you ask, how often are you mentally training? And it's somewhat a uh, somewhat a trick question, because the true answer to that is 100% of the time, you are mentally training 100% of the time, every time you go for a run, you're mentally training, every time you think about running, you're mentally training. And so the question is, are you mentally training in the most appropriate way? So going back to your question of when should we do these breathing exercises? Every single time you go for a run, because really you are breathing every time you run. And if you want to start breathing appropriately, 
then you should be doing that every single time you run. If the only time you ever bring it out is when you go to a race, it's probably not going to work as well for you because you haven't trained it. You haven't experienced it. It's not normal for you. It's not comfortable for you. And when we get into stressful situations, we all go back to what feels comfortable, even if it's not correct. And so in order for you know you doing that breathing technique that's going to be more beneficial for you when you perform, when you compete, you got to be doing that in training too. Now, the beauty of a lot of the mental toughness stuff we talk about is that it can be done simultaneously while running or while preparing for running. So you're not doing an additional two or three hours a day, but you're being aware of what you're thinking, how you're setting yourself up before every training run, as well as during each run, so that when you get to the race, you're more prepared and ready because you've created a default way of thinking that is more productive and powerful for you versus fighting your current default of something that's not as helpful for you. So it's about getting into a more productive state 100% of the time mentally, just like you're doing physically. I really like how you discussed the fact that if you bring out these skills only on race day, they will most likely fail you. And it reminds me of the line that, you know, in, in any kind of high stress situation, you are not going to rise to the level of your expectations. You'll fall to the level of your training. And we have to ensure that your training, your mental training is up to par and is is there to help support you in your pursuit of your goals. And if you're only doing it on race day, it's probably not going to be there to support you. Exactly. It's funny you bring out that line. I just tweeted that a couple of days ago. (laughs) (laughs) Great. It's, It's so good. Yeah. And that includes, I mean, I think we just miss out on the fact that it includes mental as well as physical. A lot of people see that as a physical thing, right? Well, physically I've prepared. Okay. But if you get to that starting line and you, and you have those doubts and those fears, and you're saying you're focusing on the fact that your legs feel heavy, or you didn't sleep well the night before, or you have to go to the bathroom or whatever it might be, right? If you're focused on the wrong things in that moment, then your physical training isn't what's going to get you across the finish line. In fact, the mental is probably going to keep hold you back and you you probably would have a tendency to drop out long before you should have or to decrease your effort long before that finish line. Yeah, one of the the examples I love to use about how a race can be totally thrown off by absolutely nothing physical is if you have been getting ready for let's just say a longer race like a half marathon or a marathon and you're really into listening to your music while you're training and you show up on race day and they've made a last minute rule change that you're not allowed to run with uh you know say your phone or you know your earbuds that can all of a sudden completely change the dynamic of the race and you have not trained to run without music. And this is something I've had to deal on occasion with some of my clients. And, and I think it's, it's, it's a really great way of looking at what can happen to your mindset before a race uh, by something that is, it shouldn't be too consequential. And, and I think it's a really good case study on that. Yeah, that's a great example. All right, Nicole, this has been super interesting. And, and, and I love that we were talking more about this topic. I think runners really need to uh, learn more about it and start practicing it. Are there any components of intensity and, and getting into that optimal arousal state that I haven't brought up that you think we should discuss? There's nothing that comes to mind. I think the the biggest key in knowing where to start is that self-awareness. If you don't know where you currently are, and then you don't know where you're trying to get to, then 
this stuff isn't going to make a whole lot of sense to you. So even if it's you can't go back and identify some of those times when you did really well and what your intensity or your tension level was, start paying attention now. Start including it in your running log now. Figure out you might find that days that you really struggle that tension or intensity is a little bit different. It's a little too high. And so is that one other strategy you can start using to have better run days? Absolutely. But again, you got to have the self-awareness of knowing where are you, where do you want to go before you can start employing the strategies to get there. Great advice. Thank you so much, Nicole. I certainly learned a lot and, and I really appreciate your work and what you're doing for the athletic community. Thanks so much for your time. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for having me. That's our show today, my friends. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to pay it forward, please rate and review the show, share it with your running friends or your running club, or invest in a training program at strengthrunning.com. You can also get our free mental skills training course at strengthrunning.com brain. You can also support our sponsors who help me keep the lights on over here at Strength Running HQ. Use their links and discount codes to support the Strength Running podcast. First, It's one of my favorite strength and performance tools, the Mobo Board. Go to moboboard.com and use code STRENGTHRUN10 to save 10% on your board. Invented by renowned physical therapist Jay DeSherry, Mobo helps you stabilize your stance with an innovative rocker board. There's a hole where your four little toes are supposed to be, which effectively forces you to drive your big toe into the board to improve your stability. You can hear Jay and I discuss stability training more in episode 275. Now, I mentioned this before, but going into my first session on the MOBO board, I was pretty arrogant about my ability. I mean, how hard can it be to balance, right? Well, I was humbled pretty quickly. Even if you're a good runner, better balance, stability, and proprioception are all going to help you have a more powerful stride and prevent more running injuries. You'll learn how to improve the efficiency of the kinetic chain from your hip to your big toe. Because as Jay likes to say, it's not just how strong you are, but how well you use that strength. Save 10% with code STRENGTHRUN10 at checkout at moboboard.com. Again, that's STRENGTHRUN10 at moboboard.com. I'm also grateful for the support of Athletic Greens, the health and wellness company that makes comprehensive daily nutrition super simple. And... I love simplicity. I personally struggle with eating healthy. What can I say? I like convenience foods, but I'm finding their product AG1 super helpful when I go a little overboard on the convenience. That's because one scoop gives me 75 vitamins and minerals, whole food sourced ingredients, including a greens superfood blend, probiotics, prebiotics, adaptogens, and more. AG1 helps me fill in any nutrition gaps in my diet, because I know I don't eat perfectly, and it gives me a nice boost of energy and focus throughout the day. And with all three of my kids in school at two different schools, I know I've got to support my immune system because I'm just no match for little kid germs. But what I actually love about AG1 is that it changes over time. Over the last decade plus, they've made over 50 different improvements to their formula based on the latest research to make all those nutrients more absorbable and the product more rigorous with the third-party testing that they voluntarily undergo. Go to athleticgreens.com slash Jason to see the great offer they've put together for our podcast listeners. You'll get a year's worth of free vitamin D and five free travel packs of AG1 with your first purchase. You can sign up for a single shipment or you can go for a monthly drop 
if you want to make AG1 a part of your regular healthy lifestyle. Go to athleticgreens.com slash Jason to sign up today. All right, that's our show this week, my friends. Don't miss our free mindset series. If you really like the topic of today's conversation, go to strengthrunning.com slash brain to sign up. I so appreciate you being here for being part of the Strength Running community and all your support. We'll be in touch soon. 